0: Russian college presents War, Health, and Medicine by Professor Mark Harrison. Well, thank you for inviting me here to give this lecture it 's a great honor thanks also to, to Richard for a very generous introduction. He has uh, stolen one of my opening points <laughs> which uh, at least in some ways is good because it provides um, some confirmation from what i 'm about to to say. Um, First of all, if we think about health and medicine in the First World War, the images which come most readily to mind are of a relentless stream of amputations, of casualties being dragged clumsily from the mud of the Western Front, as you can see here, or perhaps of the ravages of disease in theatres such as the Eastern Front and Mesopotamia. These are all, in some senses, accurate representations But if we concentrate on them alone, we miss one of the most remarkable aspects of the conflict, that it was, in certain respects, a success story, at least from a medical point of view, a turning point in military medical history. We can see this most clearly if we view the War of 1914 to 18 comparatively. It was the first major conflict, with a partial exception of the Russo-Japanese War of 1904 to 5, in which there were more deaths and wounds inflicted in battle than were due to disease. The figures for all the armies involved in the Great War aren't reliable, but from British records alone, we can see that the disease battlefield casualty ratio was dramatically reduced. During the Crimean War, 1854 to six, there have been five deaths from disease to each one inflicted in battle. In the South African War, or Second Boer War of 1899 to 1902, the ratio had narrowed to 2 to 1. But in 1914 to 18, it was slightly reversed, standing at 0.7 to 1. One reason for this was, that the, was the enhanced power of modern weaponry, and this had increased the number of fatal injuries. But the relative decline of disease-related deaths also dramatically also reflected dramatic improvements in sanitation and hygiene, aided by some new technologies such as inoculations against typhoid and paratyphoid fevers. This improvement in disease prevention was one of the most impressive achievements of the war. There were also significant improvements in casualty evacuation and treatment, which allowed a far higher proportion of soldiers to survive their wounds and in many cases return to battle. This was partly due to better wound management, but also reduced evacuation times, particularly in theatres such as the Western Front, which was extensive use of ambulance trains and motor ambulances. Most combatant nations, with the exception of the Ottoman and Russian armies, experienced these improvements. It was a measure of both advances in medicine and of rising expectations. Over the previous 20 or 30 years, Most advanced industrial nations had experienced falling mortality rates and there was a sense that deaths from infectious diseases or even from wound infection were no longer inevitable. The rise of humanitarian organisations such as the Red Cross contributed to this mood and led many to believe that care on the battlefield was a duty which the state owed to those who risked their lives for the benefit of the nation. By the time the First World War broke out, caregiving and medical relief were among the most visible aspects of propaganda. There were large donations towards medical aid and thousands enlisted as nurses, doctors and medical orderlies. At the same time, the state was increasingly aware that medicine could give armies a crucial edge in battle. Moreover, as the war progressed and casualties mounted, there was a strong economic and military case to preserve as much manpower as possible. At the beginning of the war, most British casualties were evacuated as far from the front as possible. The intention was to return the majority of casualties to the United Kingdom because it was thought that morale would be better as a result. However, heavy losses in the first two months of the war meant that this could no longer be sustained and it was decided to treat casualties closer to the front wherever possible. This also increased the chances of making a good recovery as there was less time for wound infection to set in before they received proper medical attention. Many were, of course, returned to the front to be wounded yet again or killed in action. Nevertheless, the success of these initiatives was striking. Of the 5.5 million British casualties admitted to hospital in France and Flanders, nearly 3 million, or 54%, were returned to duty in that theatre. Had it not been for the development of forward treatment, it's unlikely that the British and other combatant nations would have been able to continue the war for so long. The key to success, the success of forward treatment, was the casualty clearing station. Initially called clearing hospitals, these forward units had been devised prior to the war in the light of experiences in South Africa. However, during the opening months of the war, there were very few such institutions and conditions in them were causing concern among the public at home. After an appraisal of the situation in the autumn of 1914, it was decided to rename these units as Casualty Clearing Stations because the name Clearing Hospital had led the public to expect proper hospital facilities rather than the semi-mobile units which were deployed. They made use of tents or abandoned buildings as as the situation required. But the redesignation of the clearing hospital as a clearing station was more than a cosmetic exercise. As the need for forward treatment was keenly felt, many casualty clearing stations came into being. And from December 1914, they received more staff, including female nurses. Typically, the casualty clearing stations would be established just behind the firing line, although some were still vulnerable to artillery bombardment. The role was to triage casualties sent up the line from regimental aid posts and dressing stations closer to the front. Some were returned to duty shortly after their wounds were dressed, whereas the more seriously wounded would receive surgical attention and then be conveyed to one of the larger hospitals in the rear. These institutions were linked by motor ambulance convoys and ambulance trains and barges. They acted as conveyor belts in what was to become a vast medical machine as time went on units became more specialized some being established solely to deal with different types of disease or injury even the casualty clearing stations and in some cases the dressing stations began to develop specialist functions in everything from shell shock to surgery and here you can see the the layout of a a typical casualty clearing station Um, well at least typical from the sort of midpoint mid of the war onwards, and you can see that there, there are many is um, it really quite a large hospital for a forward medical unit? Um, you have quarters here for the officers, the sisters' quarters, the female nurses, which are always strictly demarcated, and the the orderlies' quarters you can see diametrically off, <laughs> very far as far as possible from the the sisters' quarters and Um, Really, there are many specialist functions here. There are bed wards, there are surgical wards, the operating theatre. Everything is designed, really, as I'll say a bit more in a moment, to to maximise the throughput. Basically, these were the the linchpins of the whole organisation. That will become a little bit clearer when I show you another diagram in a moment. So the need for manpower economy was the main stimulus to the improvement of medical arrangements. But there were significant differences between the medical situations in different theatres of the war. If we examine the most telling indicator of the health of troops, the percentage of non-battle casualties, which were mostly deaths from disease and hospital infections, sorry, which were mostly deaths and hospital admissions as a result of infectious diseases, the ratio of those to battle casualties, the picture alters radically as we move from the Western Front to other theatres. In France and Flanders, 56% of British casualties were non-battle casualties. In Gallipoli, the figure was 68%. In Mesopotamia, 91%. In tropical Africa, the percentage was probably even higher. These differences are usually attributed to climate and disease ecology, but the situation was more complex than that the medical outcomes in each theater of the war were due to the interplay of five main factors, which sometimes altered over the course of a particular campaign. The first of these were geographical factors, including things like climate, the nature of the terrain, and also the disease ecology, the kind of diseases which existed in each context in an endemic sense. The second factor was those really related to the nature of military operations. So things like the mobility of the campaign were very important. Also the complexity of the campaign, whether it was a combined arms campaign, whether it involved cooperation or not cooperation between, for instance, the Navy and the Army. The length of lines of communication, all these were sort of operational factors. The third and most obviously important factor was uh, resources. I mean, obviously how well resourced a particular campaign was had a material effect on the medical outcomes. A fourth factor, which maybe you haven't thought about so much before, is external scrutiny. This is scrutiny from people who are not part of the, the armed forces, who provided a watchful eye, who cast a watchful eye on the proceedings. And also assistance from outside the army, from the Red Cross societies, from um, organisations such as the St John's Ambulance Brigade, for instance. And the fifth factor, which I think is actually the most important, is the nature of relations between medical and combatant officers. In the remainder of this lecture, I'm going to discuss each of these variables, in turn, in relation to some of the theatres where the British Army was deployed, making occasional references to the state of health and medicine in other armed forces. My aim is to show how these factors interacted and which was ultimately the more important. Chief among the geographical factors affecting health and medicine was disease ecology. Each theatre posed a unique combination of epidemiological problems. On the Western Front, respiratory diseases and influenza were rife during the colder months and dysentery occasionally occurred in epidemic form during the summer. Typhoid and other common infectious diseases were widespread among civilians. However, these could be prevented quite effectively using inoculation and by strict enforcement of sanitary regulations. Typhoid inoculation had been developed by Elm Roth Wright at the medical, Army Medical School in Netley in the 1890s, but it had been controversial, partly because of the severe side effects which often occurred before the dosage was properly standardised. Some doctors also claimed that the procedure would detract from basic sanitation. As a result, inoculation was hardly used in South Africa, where it would have saved thousands of lives. In the intervening period, large field trials were conducted among British troops in India, which established both the safety and the efficacy of the vaccine. Other countries came to the same conclusion as the British, and in or around 1910, it was made compulsory for new recruits in several countries, including the United States. In 1914 to 18, British soldiers were also strongly encouraged to undergo inoculation against typhoid, but unlike the German army, which you can see here, undergoing inoculation against Food, it was never made compulsory. Fortunately, the uptake in the British army was sufficiently high to leave most men well protected, notwithstanding, the activities of anti-vaccinationists. The close proximity of bathhouses and disinfecting stations also helped to maintain a reasonable state of health on the Western Front, some being improvised from large industrial buildings such as breweries. This helped the situation as clothing and bedding could be sent and thoroughly cleaned and deloused. However day-to-day hygiene in the trenches was far more difficult, not least the control of lice. Despite constant delousing and desperate expedients such as turning underwear inside out, trench fever, which was basically louse-born relapsing fever, was common, causing much sickness and some deaths. Fortunately, its more deadly cousin, typhus, was, was rare in Western Europe. But in Eastern Europe and Russia, where typhus was endemic prior to the war, the dislocation caused by the conflict caused a terrible epidemic which affected troops and civilians alike. Over three million died in Eastern Europe from this disease during the war. However, the German and Austrian armies maintained a strict sanitary cordon which protected points further west from the ravages of typhus and all troops returning from the Western Front were deloused. Sorry, I've shown you the wrong slide here. This is actually a slide I should have shown earlier which relates to um, typhoid uh, inoculation, showing how on the Western Front, first of all, it was able to the maintain um, a, maintain a very low rate of infection against typhoid. Even in Mesopotamia, um, where the situation was relatively unpromising, the um, success against typhoid, although not as good as the 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 um, Western Front, was still um, was still very effective in keeping the disease at a relatively low level. Here you can see um, one of many um, images which relate to typhus during the First World War. This one is relating to civilians in particular in Serbia. Um, It was in Serbia that some of the armies developed an improvisational device to control Typhus. They didn't have the kind of facilities, the large industrial facilities like they had on the Western Front in France and Belgium. But they devised a kind of method of de-lousing using basically a barrel. It became known as the Serbian barrel. Um, And, you know, by all accounts, it was relatively effective. Um, But it was a dreadful situation on the Western Front. But what's really remarkable is the fact that It is prevented from becoming a big problem on the Western Front. If typhus had, had spread to the Western Front because of the large numbers of lice in the trenches, the result would have been really quite disastrous. Due largely to the precautions taken by the Central Powers, the British never faced a serious risk from typhus in Europe. But they did in Egypt, in the Middle East, where they were put where they put in place similar procedures, including the use of disinfection trains to De soldiers, prisoners of war, and many thousands of civilian laborers who were recruited for essential works in the Sinai Desert and beyond. As a result, deaths from this feared disease remained low. However, in the Middle East and other theatres, well away from the Western Front, the British Army suffered from many other diseases. In Mesopotamia and Gallipoli, Dysentery and other enteric infections posed the greatest problem. On Gallipoli, there was a plague of flies as a result of the enormous amount of human excrement which littered the beaches, a result of the failure to make progress in land and of the failure to send sanitary equipment. It was practically impossible to eat without the food becoming covered in flies. An infection with dysentery and other enteric infections was rife. In East Africa... Palestine and Salonika, the greatest losses were from malaria. In East Africa, heavy casualties among white troops, mostly recruited from South Africa and Rhodesia, led to them being evacuated from the theater. They were replaced to some extent by African troops who were thought to possess immunity to malaria. Some did, but many did not. Similarly, large numbers of Indian troops were sent to the theater and experienced very heavy casualties. This continued despite concerns in India that the army was being denuded of men needed to maintain order on the northwest frontier. Morale among Indian soldiers in East Africa was also extremely low as a result of these casualties and many feared that it would lead to trouble there and in the army's main recruiting grounds. In Salonika, practically no one escaped malaria at some point in the deployment. As there were up to 400,000 soldiers there at the peak of the deployment, this placed an enormous burden on the medical services. Men were normally admitted to hospital with malaria several times each year. Some endured over half a dozen bouts in hospital with malaria, either in Salonica or in the big hospital base in Malta before they were evacuated home. This inevitably had a depressing effect on morale, and was especially galling. And what was especially galling was the allegation that soldiers had deliberately contracted the disease to get some time away from the fighting. Some British soldiers who had contracted malaria in Salonika were unfairly accused of this, despite having endured many bouts of sickness. However, the medical authorities knew that this wasn't the case. The real problem was that the anti-malaria drug quinine, which was quite effective in treating the disease, was of little use as a prophylactic. It had been used in this way for decades, but its efficacy had never been seriously questioned until now. By 1916, however, it was clear clear that it was not very effective and other measures were used when possible, such as mosquito nets and drainage works. Unfortunately, these forms of protection were hard to keep up outside of the main bases. Here you can see a French poster, um, which is obviously encouraging soldiers to take the quinine. Soldiers, it had been found really over many decades, had, were very reluctant to take quinine. Um, any of you who have tasted quinine will know why. It's incredibly bitter. It can induce nausea, as I've experienced in the past too, and it's, it can be very unpleasant, particularly if you take the wrong dose. Um, there are also many rumours about quinine, um, particularly about sexual impotence. And these were later transferred to other anti-malaria drugs and to some extent still circulate in the armed forces, so I'm told. But um, one of the problems was obviously that men wouldn't take it. But in Salonika, the situation was so bad that the, the authorities insisted very strictly on men taking it, particularly in the British army. Men were lined up each day and forced to take the quinine. They were called quinine parades. And one of the, it was at first suspected that the reason why the prophylaxis with quinine didn't work was because the men were simply not taking it, but it became apparent because this discipline was very strictly maintained throughout the first two years of the campaign that that couldn't be the reason. And eventually they concluded that quinine was very little value from a prophylactic, from a preventative point of view. It wasn't until some years after the war that they realised why. But at this time, it was quite an important transition point. The problem was, though, that it was very difficult to maintain other methods, such as drainage, mosquito destruction, and so forth, and an army was on the move, or at least outside of the main bases. But disease took an even greater toll in the Ottoman armies than it did of those of Britain and the other European powers. Most of the territories occupied by the Turkish army experienced severe epidemics of cholera, smallpox, typhus, malaria, and dysentery, as did Turkey itself. Every army experienced heavy mortality and morbidity at the end of the war from influenza. As a result, it didn't confer an advantage on any particular country. But in the Middle Eastern theaters, flu-related mortality was probably higher Due to simultaneous infection with falciparum malaria, the most deadly form of the disease. This combination of infections also claimed many lives among the displaced peoples of the Middle East, with whom the British Army had to deal in large numbers at the end of the war. In Palestine and Iraq, they encountered many people fleeing from Turkish oppression and were confronted with a humanitarian and medical problem of enormous dimensions. It was very much to the credit to the Allied armies that they dealt with this problem effectively and humanely, while simultaneously confronting the same problems in their own forces and among Turkish prisoners of war. Other geographical factors also had an impact on health and medicine. Climate had a direct bearing on medical conditions such as frostbite and heat stroke, as well as on transportation. Harsh terrain also had a diverse impact on the evacuation of casualties, as did the existence or otherwise of transportation facilities. On balance, most of these elements presented more favorably in France and Belgium than they did in other theaters like Gallipoli or Mesopotamia. On the Western Front, casualty evacuation was often impeded by mud and heavy rain. But on the whole, it benefited greatly from the existence of decent roads, railways and canals. Casualties could therefore be more certain of attention within the crucial time frame necessary to address problems such as wound shock and wound infection, or prevent problems such as wound shock and wound infection. In Gallipoli and Mesopotamia, however, the absence of such networks lengthened the time it took for soldiers to obtain critical medical assistance. And this is a, these are some typical scenes from Gallipoli. Um, i said it's very very difficult to to use motor transport on gallipoli It's a very rocky peninsula uh, particularly in the after the first landings there wasn't really very much headway in land people were often moving up narrow gullies and so evacuation by mule by hand was the most usual way occasionally um, particularly after the second landings were able to use these uh, horse drawn ambulances but you know the situation particularly from a point of view of a, a wounded Wounded man, obviously, the discomfort and also the greater potential for wound infection to set in. Um, the inability to, to deal with wound shock, all these things were obviously had a major effect on the survival of casualties. These different environments clearly helped to maintain, explain the relative health of troops. But some of the difficulties presented by climate and terrain could be eased, or magnified depending on the nature of military operations. On the Western Front, all armies were able to utilise an existing transportation infrastructure of roads, railways and canals. Distances from the front to hospitals were relatively short and for most of the war, the front was relatively stable. This made evacuation relatively easy and allowed the construction of large semi-permanent hospital units like the casualty clearing station I showed earlier. In Gallipoli, though, the problems posed by harsh terrain and disease ecology were increased because it was a complex amphibious operation that required a high degree of coordination between the different services. Medical arrangements also depended on the ability of the expeditionary forces to penetrate inland so they could establish hospitals away from the line of fire. In the event, they made little progress and inter service cooperation was very poor. The army had therefore to rely on animals such as mules and on stretcher bearers for evacuation, as I've pointed out. In Mesopotamia, the chief problem was that the lines of communication were overextended. The British and Indian armies' rapid advance from the bridgehead at Basra in the south to Baghdad left casualties extremely vulnerable. There was no rail network and few proper roads. Casualties had therefore to be evacuated down the River Tigris on barges, which were in short supply during the first two years of the war. The great slowness of evacuation cost many sick and wounded soldiers their lives. By contrast, the static nature of war on the Western Front from late 1914 to the German spring offensive of 1918 enabled an elaborate system of casualty evacuation to develop. The same conditions also allowed a fairly effective sanitary infrastructure to be constructed. However, the war of movement in Mesopotamia made similar arrangements far more difficult and lengthy lines of communication hindered the supply of food and medicines to the front. One result of this was a serious outbreak of scurvy among Indian troops, causing over 10,000 to be evacuated with that disease in the summer of 1916. One of the particular problems with this um, a huge a number of casualties from scurvy was that it really affected the Indian army alone. The British army fighting in Mesopotamia, although smaller in number, was not affected by scurvy. There were some cases of other deficiency diseases, like beriberi, but most of the Indian troops who were sent out to Mesopotamia had, um, if you like, very little vitamin C in the in, in the vitamin bank before they went there, As as such when they were... Uh, found themselves in very extended lines of communication, unable to to get any kind of uh, fresh fruits and vegetables. Um, they were the people who came down with scurvy first. This really exacerbated a big problem of morale in the Indian army. Many of them were Muslim and didn't really want to be fighting in the first place against the co-religionists. Of course, many were suffering from other kinds of disease too. And there was a um, very dangerous manpower, a very dangerous morale situation in Mesopotamia at that time. There were a significant number of desertions from the Indian army to the Turkish army. And the British were very concerned about this. And so eventually they, um, they realized the, the gravity of the situation. As I'll mention in a moment, they were able to turn things around and to, to improve the supply of, of food radically after the war. They also began to revise the Indian rations um, substantially so the, the Indian army would not really suffer in the same way if it was ever deployed overseas again. Britain and its imperial forces were, have a, were uniquely vulnerable to one operational difficulty, that of transporting casualties by sea. British troops like those of the Dominions and the Empire were never fighting in their own, on their own soil which meant that those who were seriously wounded or sick were normally transported back to their country of origin at some point. They might even have to undergo two or three seaborne journeys before reaching a hospital at home. So this is just the... I want to show you the lines of evacuation. Um, That's the Western Front. These are the frontline medical units, the regimental aid posts, these are the dressing stations, and this is the casualty clearing station. You see how important it is for triage. Sometimes casualties would go here, be patched up, sent back. The more serious ones will be sent down the line, sometimes all the way back here to the main hospital um, station. And then sometimes the worst of those will be sent back by sea to, to Britain, usually. In the case of some of the Indian troops, they were evacuated to the southern coast of France, to Marseille, and then would undergo a very lengthy voyage to Egypt and then on to, to India. Here in Iraq, they would be going down the, the River Tigris for the most part, very slowly on barges down to Basra, the main British base, and then evacuated by sea uh, across, across the Arabian Sea to, in most cases, to either Bombay or to Karachi, to some of the larger hospitals there. Now, this um, reliance of all the British imperial forces on evacuation by sea meant that there are greater risks from enemy attack. Numerous hospital ships, or ships used to transport the sick and wounded, and there is an important distinction between those two things because many of the latter weren't properly fitted out as hospital ships, were sunk during the war, often with considerable loss of life. In most cases, these appear to have been accidents of war. Nevertheless, all nations made use of them to demonstrate what they portrayed as the inhumanity of their opponents. This is a fairly um, typical example of the kind of illustration that you would often see in newspapers in Britain accompanying reports of the sinking of hospital ships. Operational factors were also capable of generating peculiar medical conditions. One of the few problems unique to the Western Front was shell shock. The number of psychiatric casualties from the fighting in France and Belgium mounted steadily from 1915 and probably reached its peak in 1916 after the Somme offensive. Thereafter, the numbers began, at least officially, to decline, not due to any reduction in combat stress, but largely as a result of official policy. After the huge numbers of psychiatric cases, which occurred during the Somme Offensive in 1916, the British Army decided that such cases should be dealt with at the first opportunity, rather than evacuated to the base or even to Britain. Thereafter, men were persuaded to return to the front after a brief period of rest and encouragement from medical officers. From 1917, most soldiers, showing primary symptoms of psychiatric disturbance, probably made it no further than the regimental aid post. That's the very first of those medical units I showed you a moment ago. And these were, of course, only slightly detached from the firing line. Those who did go further down the line were treated in specialised centres, most of which were located in casualty clearing stations or in separate wards of general hospitals in bases such as Rouen. It was much the same in the armies of the other combatant nations except in the case of the French and German armies where it was usually possible for troops to enter more specialist units sooner than in the British case. But this didn't necessarily mean that the treatment was better. There's no evidence that specialist psychiatric provision made much difference to recovery at this time. Indeed, some of the treatments resorted to in some of the specialist institutions, like electric shock treatment, that's at least the, kind of the most dramatic uh, kind of treatment, were probably less effective and certainly less humane than the simple rest and reassurance procedures used closer to the front taking disturbed men away from their units may, also, may have also served to compound some of these mental disorders. None of these methods, however, was able to deal with the longer-term implications of psychological disturbance. Aftercare was either patchy or non-existent. In Mesopotamia and other theatres, away from the Western Front, there were very few facilities for psychiatric cases, and they, if those that did exist came very late in their campaigns. Indeed, there were hardly any recorded cases of psychiatric disturbance. Why this is so is unclear. One possibility is that the nature of war on the Western Front, the long periods of stasis, the feeling of being imprisoned in the trenches, the costly and frequently pointless frontal assaults, may have been more conducive to psychological trauma than large mobile campaigns such as those fought in Mesopotamia, Palestine, and East Africa, but it seems equally likely that the vast majority of psychiatric cases in those theatres were masked by other medical problems. Most troops in Mesopotamia or Gallipoli, for example, were hospitalised with dysentery and other enteric infections, or possibly with malaria too. Operational and geographical difficulties could be overcome, or at least ameliorated, if ample sources, resources, were available. This was generally the case on the Western Front, apart from shortages of motorized transport. These deficiencies were soon remedied, initially by donations from civilians throughout the empire, and at no point in time was there a serious shortfall of medical equipment, personnel, or transportation. Of course, during large engagements, facilities were sorely taxed. There were also debates about how to allocate medical manpower but a great deal of fault was given to using resources in the most efficient way. A business model was introduced and each allocation was carefully costed. Time and motion studies were conducted in medical units as far forward as the casualty clearing stations to determine the best way of utilising manpower. Units also worked closely together to deal with the flow of casualties after battles. There were, however, times when these arrangements were thrown into chaos most obviously during the spring offensive of 1918, when many forward medical units were overrun by the German advance. Yet the Allied medical services on the Western Front were able to compensate for the loss of their forward hospitals by using motor ambulances to mop up the wounded. In marked contrast, when the Ottoman army, starved of supplies and equipment, found itself in retreat in 1918, it lacked the resources it needed to maintain care for its troops. Turkish soldiers captured by the Allies were usually in a dire state, suffering from a range of infectious and deficiency diseases. Conditions in Turkish hospitals captured by the Allies were equally notorious. Men were covered in faeces and flies and the inmates were deprived of food and medical attention. Anyone who's seen Lawrence of Arabia will probably be familiar with this kind of image. And you see that the, uh, towards the end, uh, Lawrence visits the, the hospital in Damascus, um, where he finds many of the the Turkish patients covered in flies, many dead bodies lying around, and it's a basically a sanitary disaster. This this kind of thing was encountered many times by medical and other officers of the the the, um, the expeditionary force that came into into Palestine and then later up into into Syria under Allenby's command. And the same kind of conditions also were found by the British in, uh, in Iraq or what was then Mesopotamia. And this was basically due to a complete lack of <coughs> supply, the disruption of the, the Ottoman army as it was retreating. Um, conditions were, were terrible. And of course the British who were, who were dealing with very, very large numbers of prisoners of war at that point were having to deal with a massive disease problem in the Ottoman army. One of the interesting things is that you know the the Turkish themselves were using this as a as a, uh, using the high rates of disease among the prisoners of war as a way of criticising the British and of gaining a degree of international sympathy, and they were saying that the British were doing nothing to try to deal with diseases, either deficiency diseases like pellagra, beriberi, and so on, in the prison camps, or to try and deal with diseases like typhus. Um, and dysentery, which are also very common in the theater. In fact, the British did a great deal. Most of the Allied armies who were working in that theater did a great deal to improve the health of prisoners of war. And most of the Ottoman troops themselves are very grateful. It was just that at the level of international politics, this became a kind of uh, football, which is kicked around by the different powers. Now, at the start of the, the war in the Middle East, these problems were by no means confined to the Ottoman forces. In fact, the, the Turkish forces may have been better served by medicine initially than the men of the, the Allied armies. After the first Gallipoli landings, there were not enough hospital ships to carry the British and Anzac wounded away from the peninsula. A resort had to be made to transport ships. The inadequate medical and nursing facilities on these vessels and the lack of hospital beds prepared for the reception of casualties in Egypt led to severe criticism of the British government. By 1916, however, the government in London was pouring more resources into medical care in the Middle East, giving thought to its reorganisation on business principles. There was a dramatic improvement of medical care in Mesopotamia from 1916 when the direction of the campaign was switched from the government of India in Delhi to the war office in London. Up to that point, commanders in Mesopotamia had found it difficult to obtain even the most crucial supplies. The key factor in many respects was transport. The arrival of more river barges, as well as the construction of roads and railways, transformed medical evacuation in what is now Iraq. By the end of the war, the Allies were running motor ambulance convoys, which stretched for thousands of miles from Baghdad to northern Persia. The problems experienced in non-European theatres persisted for much longer than they needed to because of a lack of external scrutiny. As soon as a problem was encountered with medical evacuation or treatment on the Western Front, it was quickly brought into the open. The theatre was awash with civilian volunteers who believed that it was their patriotic duty to reveal such problems and ensure they were remedied. The absence of such persons in Gallipoli meant that it took far longer for conditions there to be brought to the attention of the public in Europe or in the Dominions. When the news did eventually break, there were hours of protest and the military authorities were compelled to improve the situation. The same was true of Mesopotamia, where medical volunteers from the Red Cross were actively excluded for the first two years of the campaign, largely, it seems, in order to conceal the true state of affairs. Even the government in London was largely unaware of the scale of the disaster unfolding there. Such was the effort put into keeping bad news from leaving the theatre. This takes us to the final... Sorry, I should say first of all about this. This is, a, um, in some ways, a, a very. What, this is one aspect of the, the scrutiny which I, I didn't have time to mention. This is... Um, not a civilian, as such. I mean, this is a person who's enrolled in what was known as the the VA, the voluntary aid, one of the voluntary aid detachments. These were auxiliary nurses who helped the regular army nurses in the Queen Alexandria Imperial Military Nursing Service. Many of these women were very well connected, and were able to use their connections to bring problems to the attention of powerful people back in London. This is a particularly good example. This is the wife of Sir John French, who was the cavalry commander on the Western Front. Because you had women like that, actually in some of these theatres, particularly in the Western Front, um, it meant that there was very little chance that any problem would go unnoticed back in London. So this takes us to the, the final and really the most important factor affecting the medical situation in the different theatres, which was the relationship between medical and combatant officers. The South African war clearly showed that one of the main reasons for high rates of disease and inadequate treatment of the wounded was the failure of commanders to heed medical advice. Despite attempts to conceal the medical breakdown in South Africa and later to detract blame from commanders to medical officers it was eventually admitted that commanders needed to consult with medical officers when planning operations. If arrangements for the evacuation of casualties were not made in advance and constantly adapted to changing operational conditions then disaster would inevitably (coughs) result. The same was true of hygiene. If commanders took little notice of medical officers they're unlikely to maintain the health of their troops. At the same time the highest standard of health achieved by the Japanese during their war against Russia, provided a positive example to follow. In the years running up to 1914, it seemed that commanders were beginning to take medical matters more seriously. Special training was made compulsory for senior officers at the British Army's Staff College, and for non-commissioned officers who were ultimately responsible for the conduct of their men. Who, is who are immediately responsible for the conduct of the men. When war broke out in 1914, senior commanders in London and on the Western Front took a keen interest in medical matters and included senior medical officers in meetings of the general staff. The influence of many civilian doctors from 1915 also undoubtedly helped matters. Commanders such as Haig showed real respect for medical officers and met with them regularly. And here you can see the probably the two most important uh, medical officers as far as the, the, the medical services on the Western Front are concerned. This is Sir Arthur Slogart, who is in charge of the medical services in France and in Belgium. And this is Keogh, who is in overall charge of the medical services. This is actually his second... Um, time as the director of the Army Medical Services. He'd already made made a name for himself in the pre-war period as a great reformer. He he worked very closely with the uh, reforming, scientifically minded liberal uh, Secretary of State for War, Lord Haldane, in the war to try and modernize the Army Medical Services. Both these men really had a great deal of respect from commanders, as did many of the more junior officers too. However, it took some time for similar relationships to develop in other theatres. Their old-style colonial attitudes prevailed and medical officers were excluded from the inner circle of commanders planning and directing operations, for example, in Gallipoli in Mesopotamia. Prior to the Gallipoli landings, for example, medical advice was frequently ignored by senior commanders such as General Hamilton, you could see here, and also Birdwood, who was another of the commanders in, in the Gallipoli Peninsula. As a result, serious, there was a serious underestimate of casualties, a dearth of medical transport and medical units, and no planning for the sanitary needs of the force which landed on the peninsula in April. Much the same thing happened in Mesopotamia. General Nixon, not sure what's happened there, <laughs> right, okay. General Nixon, who you can see here, who was an Indian Army cavalry officer in charge during the rapid advance from Basra, failed to plan for medical evacuation and sanitation, as well as many other things, with disastrous results. Moreover, he did his best, as I've said, to conceal the deepening problem from superiors in Delhi and London. From 1916, however, the medical situation in some theatres outside Europe began to improve partly as a result of more resources, partly due to the appointment of new commanders, many of whom had experience of the Western Front. A more professional attitude was evident and medical officers were actively involved in planning operations. As a result, the medical situation in Mesopotamia was turned around. Ironically, however, one of the generals who presided over this improvement, General Maud, was himself to die from cholera in Baghdad in 1917 Here just very quickly you can see um, how non-battle casualties, which are mostly disease casualties in Mesopotamia, reduced significantly over time. Um, The ratio between the British and the Indians was interestingly roughly the same, although I don't have an exact breakdown over all years for the Indian Army. The expedition into Palestine in 1917 was also managed extremely well from a medical point of view as a result of the appointment of General Allenby, who had gained experience as a staff officer on the Western Front. Allenby made strict, maintained strict sanitary and anti-malarial discipline in the expeditionary force, was able to preserve its health until the last phase of operations, which took the army into the malarious Jordan Valley. Thereafter, the environment was so hostile from a medical point of view that very little could be done. Fortunately, Allenby had given considerable thought to medical care and evacuation, so the enormous numbers of military casualties as well as prisoners of war and displaced persons were dealt with quite effectively. And here you could see uh, um, camel evacuation of casualties in Palestine. This was not, not uncommon. What would usually happen was that the camels would take the casualties to trains at stations really right up through Palestine. And then they would be taken down the line all the way back to Egypt. The lessons learned by the British Army outside the Western Front had been hard, but they were not forgotten. For years afterwards, what had happened in Mesopotamia and Gallipoli provided an object lesson in how not to run a campaign. Indeed, the commanders of most combatant nations entered the Second World War with a keen awareness of what had worked in 1914 and what had failed. They were determined not to make the same mistakes. Perhaps the most important lesson was that much could be done to preserve health and morale in even the most unfavourable environments. This could only be done if medical and combatant officers worked effectively together, from the planning of operations through to their completion. The creation of an institutional culture which promoted this interaction was crucial to success. Even more, I think, than technical advances in preventive medicine or in the treatment of the wounded. Thank you. For all information, please go to www.gresham.ac.uk.